What happened for me is those people walked in, as soon as I heard the gunfire, I knew it was gunfire. I knew that it was gunfire. So before I just went to panic stations, I stopped and asked myself, what is really happening here? Welcome to Everyday Leadership, podcast where I interview leaders not defined by position or title. Everyday people who lead their lives in extraordinary ways. And on this podcast, they share their stories the life lessons and practical tools in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with um, Eric Edmead. He is the leading authority in behavioral change dynamics. He is a serial entrepreneur, so founder of so many different companies as well as um, Wildfit which is globally recognized as one of the most effective health transformations. And he is a international business speaker, speaking on stage with the like of Tony Robbins, president in the past. And also he has his own business school as well. So as you can tell, Ed, Ed, <laughs> Eric, Eric gets busy. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, you know, it's um, it doesn't feel very busy. It just feels like a lot of fun things to do. Okay. And how have you been doing during this COVID period and coping with the changes and not being able to travel as much and, and all that? Um, I first is I've actually done a lot of travel during this time. I I've, I've needed to for a variety of reasons, reasons, personal business and research. Hmm. Um, so I've, I've probably completed about, I don't know, 45 flights in the last seven, eight months. So I, I, I it, it hasn't been that restrictive, although of course, the travel's been difficult and, you know, um, and the destinations are limited. But, but more than that, um, you know, I think I've, I've, COVID's been interesting in the sense that when it first hit, I was one of the people that seemed hysterical. You know, like in February, people thought that I was overreacting and I was telling them, no, this is going to be a lot more serious than you think it is. And they're like, no, no, no. And then, of course, by March, we kind of um, caught on and, the good news for me is I got all my fear and panic out of the way before everybody else became afraid and panicky. <laughs> and, um, you know, we made some good shifts in our business. And um, and uh, in the end, it, it's actually been a really phenomenally interesting year. Um, and I say that with the full respect for I know that a lot of people have had, uh, you know, real difficulties, of course, you know, completely aside from people who have been directly affected by the, the virus. There's there's a lot of people who have been indirectly affected and um, and I have a lot of concern and, and empathy for the situation they've been in. And I'm very grateful that uh, I've been able to uh, ride this wave and, and kind of um, uh, I've been able to, I don't know, I guess, pull the best out of it that I could. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Oh, that's so what would you say have been the, the major lessons you've kind of learned through this through this period then? You know, one, one is a recurring theme in my life, but it, it just generally this idea that, um, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of time worrying and, um, and the truth is, you know, if you sit down with anybody, you know, any, any, anybody who does like coaching work, I, I suggest one of the most powerful conversations to do is to sit down and create a list of all the things that clients or friends have, um, devoted, uh, a lot of worry time to make a list of them all. What are some of the things you worried about? Did you worry about that relationship ending? Did you worry about losing your job? Did you worry about your going out of business? Did you worry about a disease? Did you worry? You know, there's a lot of things that we've worried about. And then 
Then what's really interesting is to take a look and cross out the things that never happened. You know, that, that you spent a lot of time worrying about that just never even happened anyway. And, and that's important because, you know, there's that old cliched expression of like a coward dies a thousand deaths and the brave man only one. Well, I think sometimes we use an expression so often that it becomes a cliche and it loses its meaning. But if you really think about what that, that expression is about, it's saying that every single time you imagine it going badly, every single time you worry about it, every single time you visualize the worst, you create the biochemistry of it happening. So you actually experience the very thing that you're afraid of and you experience it over and over and over again. And then it's quite a joke when you realize that it never even happened anyway. And so crossing out all the things you worried about that, that have never happened is a really interesting experience in looking and going, wow. So what that means is like fully 90% of the crap that I'm going to worry about, I may as well stop worrying about that because it's not going to happen anyway. And then here's the real kicker is that the 10% that did happen or the 2% that did happen or whatever, you know, then look at that and go, well, how many of these things were actually bad or how many of these things served me? And then you realize that it's like something like this, out of every 10 things you worry about, nine of them don't happen and one of them is a gift. It just isn't, it's a gift that comes in crappy wrapping paper. You know, so you don't enjoy it very much, but with the balance of time, you can look at it and go, yeah, it served me. Yeah, that is, that is so true. I think it's one thing I do with my clients when I talk about separating the logic from the emotion and learning the lesson from the experiences that you go through and letting the emotion go because that doesn't serve you, but the lessons can certainly do. And when I read through your your story, I was very fascinated how you went from this 15-year-old kid in, in Canada who was homeless to creating the life that you currently have right now. How did you develop that mentality to be able to, I guess, grow, develop, have that mindset to be like, actually, I'm not going to let my current situation limit me and define me? You know, I, I think... Part of the answer is built into reframing the question. So, you know, somebody, people often ask me that, like, how did you go from there to there? And I go, well, I got here because of there. Uh, you know, like I, I got here because of what I went through, not despite it. And, you know, w w what I mean is, is that, look, that that period of time in my life was really difficult. I was an unruly child. I, 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 was, I must have been hell of difficult to parent. My parents were, you know, both going through their various struggles in life and, one thing led to another and I found myself in this situation where I was like homeless and what do I do now? And, and, and I think that it was going through that experience that taught me real independence, you know, real, real like self-responsibility. Wow. I'm, I'm in charge of this. I'm in charge of whether I eat or not. I'm in charge of whether or not I, I, where I sleep. I'm in charge of literally everything about my life right now for the first time. And, um, Frankly, many kids don't even have that experience until they get into their mid-20s because they continue to receive funding and help and stuff from their parents right up until at some point in their mid-20s. Or even I know I, 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 I have a friend of mine whose brother lived at home until he was 31 years old. He lived there at home, living rent-free, eating his mom's food until he was 31 years old. And, and, and so, okay, finally at 32, his parents actually kicked him out and said, you, you got to go figure this out. And it was traumatic and shocking for him. And I'm like, well, I just went through that same trauma and, fa and, and you know, trauma and shock. I just did it when I was 15. And, um, and so I don't think it's, it's so much like how, how did I get from there to there? It's more that I think a lot of the fortune that I've had in my life and, and I have, I, 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 I live a really nice life. I, I, you know, I have my ups and downs, but I live a great life. I, I get to travel. I have the most incredible friends. I've, 
I've, I've, had, I've had the privilege of having an impact on so many people, but it's not, despite those things, it's not that I somehow climbed out of some big hole. It's that those things were part of the journey to get me here. Wow. I think that, that reframing is definitely powerful because it shifts your focus from rather than focusing on the actual situation and it starts to use that to move you, to move you forward. And when I was um, looking into WildFit, one of the things that actually struck me was how your approach seemed to be very, very different. You didn't focus on willpower. You focus more around mindset. And naturally speaking, when you talk about diet, when you talk about food, when you talk about health transformations, willpower is something that features time and time and time again. So I wanted to kind of lean into that a little bit more and expand on obviously what WildFit is and what it does and how it different the market, but more around why willpower is not the way forward or why manta is so important when it comes to food. So um, I think the first thing to do is to understand what willpower is. Um, you know, a, a guy that I know wrote a book uh, a couple, three, four years ago, and he said, willpower doesn't work. And I, I actually don't agree with that. Um, you know, willpower absolutely works as long as you put it to work doing the right things. So what we have to do is understand what willpower is. What is the purpose of willpower? How does it work? And, you know, what is it for? So one of the ways to think about willpower is that willpower is, um, it's like your conscious mind, your, your highest self, um, asserting a level of control uh, over the body and, and over the subconscious mind, right? So when somebody says, I'm not going to eat donuts, they're saying, I'm asserting my willpower and I'm going to control my body's urges. I'm going to control my cravings. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to reject them and I'm going to, I'm going to take over and assert this control. And willpower takes a huge amount of energy because it, it's, you're, you're kind of like tense, right? If you've ever done any wrestling or something like that, one of the greatest things you can do in jujitsu is notice when your partner thinks they've got you in a hold and they're super tight. And all you do is just relax and get your breath back and one, and then explode out of the hold, right? And, and in a very real sense, willpower is trying to do the same thing. It's trying to hold you. It's trying to hold. And eventually, it, it, it will just run out of energy and it'll lose. And, and one of the ways to think of that is holding your breath. So uh, I, I do quite a lot of free diving and, I, and, and so I'm pretty good with my breath work and so on. So I'm, I, I can hold my breath fairly easily for about two minutes, especially if I'm underwater. I can, I, you know, I can do a two-minute breath hold, which is not championship or anything. It's just a good level for amateur free diver like me. Now... If, if a person goes underwater and they hold their breath, they are using willpower. They are asserting their will over their body's conscious desire to breathe. The body does not want to hold its breath. It wants to breathe, but you're using willpower. Now, if you're above the water and you're using willpower, then what will happen is eventually the body will just say, screw you, we're breathing now. And it will override you. It will override you. Because in a sense, maybe one metaphor to think of is that your conscious mind is like the captain and your subconscious and the body is like the crew. And eventually, if they feel like they're being starved oxygen, they're going to override you and they're going to breathe in. But what's crazy about that is they will also do that if you are underwater. So you're holding your breath and you're underwater. So logically, you know that you cannot breathe, but the urgency will lead to a mutiny. The urgency will lead to your body or your subconscious overcoming the willpower. So it's not that willpower doesn't work, it's that willpower was only ever designed for short-term behavior correction. 
It was only designed for short-term tensing in order to get through a given circumstance. And so in WildFit, what we are showing people is that they, they is how to not have to rely on willpower to have the body and health and conditions and food relationship that they want. And that frankly, they can't. You know, the, what, what somebody can do is they can use willpower for a short period of time, potentially to break an addiction or make a new or, or create a new behavior or what have you, but they can't use willpower as a long-term strategy because the body will eventually override it. And so that that's, you know, so our approach is that we help people use willpower for short bursts of time to create new relationships with particular foods or particular substances or what have you. And as a result of that, increase their consciousness so that in the future, they don't have to use willpower because their conscious and subconscious is aligned on the matter. In other words, they can walk past the dessert tray at the casino, at the, at the, at the resort, at the all-you-can-eat buffet, and they can look at it and, and, and be disinterested in it. And now they're not having to rely on willpower at all because the addiction cycle has been broken. Wow, that's, that's a whole kind of inner subconscious transformation that kind of needs to that needs to happen. But how does that work with things like cravings that we all get, which is which is a natural um, bodily feeling? Does that still work when you do the same thing you just applied right now? Or do you have to tackle things like cravings completely differently? Because we know that the more cravings you have can lead to you eating poorly and then you have a bad diet and all that kind of stuff. Well, cravings are not only a natural body condition. Um, some cravings are a natural urge, a natural craving, an instinctual craving. The craving for fat and salt and you know that kind of stuff they, in sweet, those things are at the base. But most people don't, ha don't listen to just that. They, they have another set of cravings on top of it, like they want Cinnabon or they want a Coca-Cola. They have a craving for a Coca-Cola or they have a craving for a donut or a craving for pizza. And those cravings are psychological cravings. Those cravings were taught to them in their childhood. Like, you know, one of the worst things that parents do, and they don't know they're doing this, they don't mean to do it, but they reward their children with food. And so, for example, you take the take the team out for, uh, um, you know, they go out for a baseball game, hockey game, football game, basketball or something, right? They go out, play the game, and they win. So what does the team manager do, the one, who's a parent, right? You know, one of the parents takes them all out for pizza. And they get to have Coke and pizza and they get to do all that. And so that pretty soon it's like winning means pizza. Winning means pizza. You wonder why it is that at 45 years old with a belly big enough that they can't see their own shoes, they're still eating pizza whenever they have a win, right? And then, and then on the other side, another parent, the team loses a huge match and the kids are depressed in the bus on the way home. And they're like, you know what, guys, let's stop for pizza. And now it's they, they, pizza and, and, and by the way, since they lost, you know what? We're going to let them each have a nice, like we're going to each one of them can have a milkshake too. And now, now you got that same 45 year old who's been conditioned this way through their whole life. Now they have a shitty day at work and the only thing that can help is pizza and, uh, you know, an ice cream or something like that. So though, many of those cravings are not natural. They are conditioned cravings stacked upon a natural instinct. The natural instinct is the part that makes them hard to break, but they are absolutely breakable. There's no question about it. We, 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 we were, those things were conditioned into us sometimes by bad decisions by parents, sometimes intentionally by manipulative food manufacturers that have done the best they can to hijack our living circumstances and holidays to, to create a shortcut so that we have no freedom and we have to eat what they want. Look, <laughs> here's the deal. Easter, 
I know people who cannot celebrate Easter if they don't eat chocolate. Now, look, I went to an Anglican school, which is to say I went to the closest thing to a Catholic school that a Protestant school can be. And I went to this school and I, they had Bible study. And I can tell you something. I've been through that Easter story a lot of times, a lot of times. And I still haven't found chocolate like that. <laughs> I don't, I, I remember the cross and the sticking with the ribs and the sticking with the spear in the ribs. I remember all that. I remember talk, you know, I remember there's the resurrection, but I don't remember this Easter bunny and, and the chocolate. Wait, like where did that? And, and, but, and if you go to the prequel, you might remember the prequel. The prequel was the whole baby being born, the, you know, the, the, the questionable pregnancy. Who knows how she got, we, she shouldn't even be pregnant and yet she is. And now there's the baby and now there's this baby Jesus in the manger and the three wise men come and they didn't bring candy canes and pumpkin pie. It, it, they brought frankincense, myrrh, and gold. And yet there are people who cannot experience Christmas without the sugar and the cakes and the Christmas cakes and stuff. That, that's not a natural instinct. That is a bought and paid for sponsorship of your emotional states. Wow. That's gonna, that's gonna hurt. <laughs> that's gonna, that's really gonna hurt because that is very, very true. It's about conditioning. It's conditioning that we've had to associate certain foods with certain moods or certain experiences. But does that mean that you never have any cravings? You don't ever partake in things like pizza, chocolate, candy, or is it about learning? I had pizza rap- last night. <laughs> I had pizza last night. I, I, I've got, I, I, you know, I've got my girlfriend here. Her, her teenage daughters are here. And we had a huge day out on the water. And, and, and I came back and said, what do you guys want? And they're like, pizza. So we had pizza, but I have rules about pizza. I don't eat cheese. I just don't eat that. There, there's, it's an un, for me, it's an unforgivable food. Now remember, Wild Fit is ultimately about freedom. It's about helping people find freedom. So the best way to think of it is, Wild Fit gives you the ability to eat what you want, whenever you want, and not feel guilty about it. But it also gives the ability to not eat the things that you wish you wouldn't eat and not have regret about that. There's the balance, right? So the girls wanna have pizza. So I take a look in the fridge, what do I got? Well. You know what? I've got Bob Red Mills gluten-free pizza crust. Not going to pretend it's healthy, but it's not as bad because it won't trigger as much sensitivity because it's gluten-free. Then on top of that, I've got some organic tomatoes here and I had some onions and I had some really nice ham, you know, really well produced. And next thing you know, I made a pizza and it was the, and by the way, everybody at the table agreed that it was like among the yummiest pizzas we'd ever had. And yet it was made, it wasn't in a deep fried garbage fat filled crust. It, It was a good pizza. And so it's not like, you know, everybody thinks that like, oh, if I become healthy, I give up all the fun. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's just that you learn to make things that are healthy and yummy. You know, like I, I, I used to love ice cream. It was my ultimate go-to. I went to a boarding school and at the boarding school on Tuesday nights, they had canteen night. And you would get your allowance that your parents put in your sundries account. And then you'd go over to the canteen. And if you got there fast, and I got there fast, if you got there fast, you'd be able to buy one of the half liter tubs of ice cream before they sold out. Then you'd go and you weren't allowed to have candy by the next day. That was one of the things they taught us. Like you were not allowed to have any candy in the school, which is why, by the way, I ran the candy black market a lot of the time. But, but that's another story for another day. But ice cream did not work in the, in the black market. So you, 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 you had no way of, you had to eat it all that night. 
So you got this half liter tub of ice cream and you would sit in bed in the dark and eat this and it would be your expression of freedom. So guess what? For the rest of my life, if ever I was feeling down or feeling trapped, I was like, I want to eat an ice cream. Well, I haven't had ice cream in 30 years now. I, I just wow. don't eat ice cream. Except, wait a second now. I've clearly had frozen desserts. I've chosen, for example, I have an ice cream machine in my house. And you know what you do? You take fruit, you freeze the fruit. And then you take it out of the freezer and you wait about 10 minutes just to get a little of the crispiness out of it. And then you run it through this press and it creates the creamiest, most gorgeous fruit-based ice cream. So it's not a matter of saying that we have to give up all of, our, all of our wants and pleasures. It's a matter of saying, I want to become conscious about the pleasures that I choose. And is the pain worth the pleasure? And the truth of it is, most people are choosing a few minutes of pleasure for hours of discomfort and possibly a long and painful and slow and expensive death. But I think there's also the, there's an ease to it as well. The time that it will take to make your own food, create your own pizza, I think it's going to take, taste great as opposed to either getting fast food or going to a supermarket and picking something up really quickly, which has already been created and been processed. It's that whole time that goes into it. And if you're not intentional about your routine that you have and the food that you put into your body, you're naturally just going to gravitate to, I need to go on the go. I need to do that really, really quickly rather than the opposite of what, what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and one of the difficulties is that, frankly, for the majority of human history, um, planning, planning and food were not, you didn't plan. Like for the vast majority of human history, you hunted and gathered circumstantially based on the seasonal conditions and based on your levels of hunger in a moment. There was no pantry, there was no refrigerator, and there was no Uber Eats, right? So there was no planning. There was just like, you just, you just got what was available when it was available. And by the way, that meant that if there was a ton of fruit on the tree, you ate all of it because you didn't know if it would be there the next day. That meant that if you went and killed yourself a big mammoth, you didn't, you didn't just nibble at that. You ate it to the point of distension of your belly because God knows if you'd get to eat the next day. So our, our, our instincts are often to overeat because overeating used to be a survival strategy. And on top of that, our, our instincts are to, um, to eat, to not plan. You know, we, we never used to really plan. Now the problem is a lot of people don't plan and the, the food industry is using our lack of planning to create what they call convenience, what I call killing. You know, it's like they're, they're creating all these convenient foods, but the only thing really convenient about them is that they're, is that they're, um, is the timing. That's the only thing that's convenient. They, they, they don't, they, they don't do anything good for your energy levels in the short term. I mean, okay, fair enough. You can eat that stuff and have a spike of energy for half an hour or something like that. But an hour and a half later, you feel like crap. And we all know that. We all feel heavy and crap after most of those foods. The next day, we have a mild hangover and we need a coffee to just kickstart our day because we've been eating crap the day before. And that, that says nothing to the conversations that we're going to have with our doctors as we start getting into our 40s and 50s and 60s because those decisions, one at a time, are not harmful but compounded. They're deadly. to take the time now to actually put the right plans into place thinking about your future not just focused on your current right now yeah and thinking about um wild fit i was curious looking through when you were what, 21 you had certain health conditions um around you which despite what the doctor said you you kind of manage yourself and you've you've healed through losing weight but then he took you what, till 2007 to create WildFit? Why was the difference in that timing? And was that something that was always on your mind, even since you were 21, that you wanted to create, but you just didn't, you had other things in place, or did it come to you later? 
A little bit of both. Um, when I when I first discovered the power of food to heal and and stuff, I, I became unreasonable to be with. Like <laughs> you you wouldn't want to come and have dinner with me. I'm like I'd be like I'd be like, look, you see that thing on your plate? That's gonna kill you. Like I I was just that guy that you didn't want to invite for a meal because I became um, uh, ideological and. Um, and I became stuck in my thought processes about it and so on. And, 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 but it was all out of a desire to help because I knew the pain that I was in previously. So all I wanted to do is help everybody get out of that pain. And after a while, I learned a lot more about food and, and nutrition. I mean, I, 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 I read everything I could read. And, 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 and then I started um, doing all kinds of interesting research. And, and I even went to go uh, uh, start visiting with the, the Hadza people, the, the, the last hunter-gatherer tribe on earth. I started visiting them about 10 years ago. Like I, I, I was really curious about the topic. But the one thing that I found and that really got in my way is that I knew what people needed to start doing and stop doing in order to attain optimal health. I knew that. I knew that already. I got it. I figured it out. It was not difficult. The part that was difficult was you could walk up to a friend of yours who was in a disastrous amount of pain and discomfort. You could give them the rules. They would agree with the rules, but then not follow them because willpower doesn't work in the long term. And most people cannot focus uh, their attention beyond the immediate pleasure. They just can't do it. They, they well, yeah, but it's here in front of me right now. Oh, it's free. Or the person made it with love and I don't want to reject them. And, you know, it, it, there's a million excuses for why we're going to make an exception this one time. But it's those one-time exceptions repeated over and over again that create for disastrous destinies that, that de destroy our future. And, and I just couldn't figure that piece out. Why is it that somebody could actually be in pain? They, they, you know, they could be overweight, headed toward diabetes, or even in type 2 diabetes, and, and, uh, or obese, or any number of other things, or some combination of those things. And I could give them the rules, and they wouldn't follow the rules. And it, I just didn't understand. And it, it was back in about, I guess, almost eight years ago, in about, maybe nine years ago, um, I, I, uh, I decided to work on the psychological aspects of food. And I, I, I developed some theories about the way food psychology worked. I'd been studying it for a long time. I'd been paying attention to all the people that I'd tried to coach and the, the hit rate just wasn't very high. Like I was, I mean, look, my hit rate was high. Probably 10% of the people that I helped were getting results. And that's very high in the diet industry, believe me. But it was never enough for me to devote, like I, I just wasn't gonna try and turn that into a mission if it was only ever gonna help 10% of the people that I helped. And then one day I, 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 I kind of figured out what I believe to be a, a, a solid journey that would create permanent um, super consciousness around food, that would create permanent freedom around food for people. And so I, I took eight people and ran them through a, a trial class and I was astounded at the results they got. I learned from that process, tightened up my process a little bit more, did another eight people, did another eight people. But then something interesting started happening is that my business clients all started asking if they could buy this program. So I started selling it for the first time and turned it into a commercial product. But we didn't have a website or anything. It was just the only way you could buy it is you happen to be at one of my business programs uh, you know, from businessfreedom.com. And if you were at this entrepreneur business school or any of our programs, you would, you would then you know, be introduced to the concept of WildFit and you might buy it. But then one day, one of my clients, who is quite a successful author in America, a guy named Paul Sheely, he and his wife did the program. And um, he contacted me. He goes, I can't find a website for your WildFit program. I go, there isn't one. It's just a hobby. And he goes, yeah, but I want to tell my network about it. 
So you got to put up a website. And I'm like, oh crap, it's just a hobby. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, you know, I spent some money and got a website built and, and then he told his network about it. And, you know, up to that point in time, maybe a hundred to 150 people a year were going through the program. You know, it was a nice little hobby. That's all it was. And all of a sudden 200 people signed up in a week. And I was like, oh, this wow. might be more than a hobby. And that just kept happening. It happened again with a guy named Colin Sprake in Vancouver, Canada. He, he, he asked me to come and speak about WildFit at a conference, 150 people, 170 people signed up. And then uh, famously, Vishen Lakiani, who is the founder of Mind Valley, which is maybe the largest digital education, you know, in the personal development space, the largest digital education platform on earth. And he did the program, transformed his relationship with food, transformed his body. And he shared photographs of his before and after pictures with his community. And all of a sudden, in the space of something like two weeks, 1,100 people signed up to do the program. And so we went from 150 clients a year to 3,000 clients a year to 5,000 clients a year. And it just, you know, now we've had something like 35 or 40,000 people do the program in 130 countries. We have 400 coaches around the world. It's just been a phenomenal success. And here's the real joke. It's the only business I ever started that the intention had nothing to do with making money. And it's my most financially <laughs> successful business I've ever created. That is crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Oh, the craziness doesn't stop there. I mean, you know, the, the, the craziness goes like this. Like, I, I start this business and you ask, why didn't I immediately write a book or create a program? It's like, well, I wasn't a doctor or a nutritionist. It was just my own hobby. Like, what right did I have? You know, imposter syndrome kind of a thing. And then I was sitting down with an with a intuitive business coach one day and she said to me, um, she said, what do you think is holding you back? And I go, well, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. She goes, yeah, but you're getting results. And I go, well, yeah, but I'm not a doc. She goes, Eric, do you agree that you have probably reversed more cases of type 2 diabetes than any than, than any average doctor does in their entire career? And, you, and you've done that maybe in four or five years. And I go, well, yeah, that's probably true. And she goes, is it possible that you have unprescribed, that you have caused more people to stop taking prescription medicines than any doctor even prescribes. And I said, yeah, it's possible. We've had quite a few thousand of you. She goes, so why do you care what piece of paper you have? You're getting the results. She goes, chill out and relax. And I'll bet you doctors start coming to you for training. <laughs> like this woman is not bar crazy. Yeah, well, that's what happened. We now have a number of doctors and, and nutritionists and, and, and certified dietitians and so on that have gone through the, they, their clients have gone through the program. They, they've been intrigued by the results and then they've come and done the program themselves and become coaches. We've actually trained them on the WildFit method so that they could use the WildFit uh, system for their patients. One, my favorite example of this is um, there, there's this Dr. Ruben Ruiz and he, what a neat guy he is. He, uh, he, had three, he has three clinics in Southern California. He's a medical doctor, uh, you know, very uh, solid guy. And, but like a lot of people his age in America, hypertensive, on medications to deal with that, type 2 diabetic, medicating that. And so one day he got up and went to work and, 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 um, and he stopped off at Starbucks to buy himself a coffee because, you know, to stay awake on the drive to work. And then he still fell asleep behind the wheel of the car, was in quite a serious accident. Luckily, nobody was hurt. Two days later, he's in a rental car, pulls over at the same Starbucks, buys another coffee, drinks as much of that as he can to stay awake on the drive to work, falls asleep again, drifts off into the HOV lane and is in another accident. Luckily, again, nobody hurt. But at that point, he hits this wall. He's like... Well, first he hit a literal wall, then he hits a figurative wall. And he's like, how am I a doctor? Like, I'm on five medications. I'm falling asleep behind the wheel of my car. I, how am I a doctor? And that night, he's on the internet doing whatever he's doing. And he bumps into one of my masterclasses with Mindvalley. And 
Um, and he just hears some things that intrigued him about the way food really works and the way pharmaceutical companies really work and the way food manufacturers work. And he ends up doing the program, loses 40 pounds, gets himself off all five medications, reverses his type two diabetes. He's no longer diabetic. By the way, type two diabetes is treated as a chronic disease, right? You, once you get the prescription, well, sorry, once you get the, the, uh, the diagnosis, then you're given a prescription and you're going to be on that prescription for the rest of your life. Yeah. He's now reversed it. He's reversed his hypertension, another chronic disease. And he is a phenomenally passionate doctor again. And, uh, and, and a certified WildFit coach and a co-author of a book on diabetes that we're about to release. So it's, it, it, the, oh, and, and if the crazy doesn't stop there, again, think, I'm just this guy, homeless at 15 years old, fascinated by food. What happened here? Well, then one day I get a letter from the Canadian government. They're like, uh, you know, we need you to come to Ottawa for an award. And standing on the Senate floor with the Speaker of the Senate and, and, and a senator, they award me with a, for a medal. Like literally, I, it, it's here, like, it gave me a medal for what they said was improving the quality of so many people's lives. So yeah, I, I, it's one of those things. The first time I started a business with really truly selfless intent, like I'm just trying to help people. It just ended up being the, the most rewarding and successful and, and uh, phenomenal opportunity. That is absolutely amazing. When you get lost in the service of people and just making a difference in people's lives, that's, that's what can happen. And as you were talking about your, your different successes and your different wins, it reminded me of something I heard you talking about, why it's so important that we, we celebrate wins. You lived in the UK for, for a while, so you know what the you know what the culture is like out here. You've lived in different countries, so you know what different cultures are like when it comes to celebrating wins and how a lot of times it's, oh, don't do that, don't talk about that. You have to be humble, don't brag. But then you actually touched on why it's important, even from a um, biological perspective why it's so important that we celebrate. I want to go into that bit. Yeah, there are two really good biological reasons for celebration. Um, the first thing is, is that like, let's, let's, shall we talk about the UK for a moment? Um, it, you know, every country has their way of holding their people down. Every country has a different way. In Australia and New Zealand, they talk about tall poppy syndrome. You know, so if a bunch of mates are out at the, out at the pub having drinks and one of the guys is like, super excited about his, um, you know, work and what have you. And he's, and, and, and his friends start thinking he's too full of himself. Then, you know, he, he walks away, goes to the loo or something. And then they go, you know, we got to cut him down to size and they got to cut him down to size, which is this reference to the tall poppy syndrome, you know, that you don't want the tallest poppy growing. You want, you want to cut it down and keep them all at the same level. And in the UK, and I know you know this, but I don't know if, like, I don't know if you've really thought about it a lot, but in the UK, there's, there's, there's a more subtle, you know, because the, yeah, there's, there's, the, the, Britain can be quite subtle in the way they do things. And, and, and so here's how it works in Britain. I say to you, oh God, you know, I just came back from Africa. We did a week-long trek with the Hadza Bushmen. We went on some of the most incredible safari. Then we went to Zanzibar with white sand beaches and the most yummy food ever. And then your, and then your reply to that, if you're, if you're not, like, if you're typical, your reply to that is, oh, it's all right for some, right? It's all right for some. And, and when we say that, can't deny it. Can't deny it. Well, that, but that's what the, like you hear that all the right for some. And what they're basically saying is, oh, it's all right for you. And there's maybe probably something wrong with you that you get to do that. Maybe you're too rich or, you know, whatever, like there's some you know, holding you down. Mm -hmm. Now, he, he, so the first biological reason for dealing with this is that, you know, we humans all have these, um, uh, let's call them education accelerators. We have an education accelerator and we call it mirror neurons. So what mirror neurons do is they, 
uh, they observe the people that you consider to be um, alpha in your society, they, 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 somebody who is leading the way in a given area. And once you've identified them as alpha for you, um, and you know who alpha is for one person compared to another might be a very different thing. But once you've identified somebody that you admire, you activate your mirror neurons and it, it, it makes you start to unconsciously model their behavior. It makes you pay higher degrees of attention to them. It, it causes you to listen to their language patterns and adopt their values and you start to become like them unconsciously. By the way, this is why celebrity is so dangerous in our world. Like you have, you have kids, like take the UK for example, you have kids in the UK that are admiring top footballers and admiring rap stars who are alpha in one measure, but do you really want your kids adopting some of those values? Not that there aren't some phenomenally great footballers out there, but there's also some disastrous ones, right? And so what we want to, what we want to recognize is that when we celebrate someone else, we are activating our mirror neurons. So what that says to me is we should be very selective of who we celebrate. I celebrate every win that Elon Musk gets. I celebrate every win that Richard Branson gets. I am up for that. I, I admire them and my admire, and that doesn't mean I think they're perfect and it doesn't mean I don't think they have challenges, but I admire them. And so the, the stronger my admiration of them, the more likely it is that I will unconsciously model them. And I, you know, I can say that that is directly responsible for my success in my Britain, in my company in Britain. I started modeling and admiring and paying attention to Richard Branson. I was lucky enough to get to meet him a few times and th that transformed my business in the UK. And it's probably one of the main reasons I was able to exit from it and do quite well. So the first biological directive is admire people, you know, ch choose conscious admiration. Do not idly admire somebody because they won an Academy Award. Just because they're a phenomenal actor doesn't mean they're a great person. And by the way, again, there are some great actors that are great people, but there are also some actors that, you know, in our society, what we value as alpha is maybe not who you want to be modeling. And, that, and I think we have to be careful of that. The second biological reason, and this is even, you know, I don't know, the first one people talk about, the second one, I don't really hear anybody talking about this, but basically what happens is when you celebrate something, an achievement of yours, when you celebrate it properly, you produce all these really gorgeous chemicals in your body. Your body likes the feeling. You're, you're, you, yes, yeah, awesome, yes, and you celebrate it and your body produces all this serotonin and, and dopamine. And then in a sense, what happens is your body goes, I like that. How can we get more? You know, like your body starts going, how can I, how can I recreate that again? And, and it's so powerful that it is one of the most powerful ways of creating new behaviors. It's, it's, it's a, it, in fact, it's so good at creating new behaviors that it can actually stimulate the creation of superstitious rubbish behaviors. Like a crazy example I use is you got, you got, you know, some kid playing in their first professional sporting match, rookie year, first year out there as a professional, not really expecting to get much game time. And then all of a sudden coach goes, you out there, you know, go out on the field. And whatever happens in that moment, that kid does the right thing and scores the winning goal, touchdown, home run, whatever, it doesn't matter. But that kid wins the championship. Now here's what's going to happen. First of all, the kid's going to celebrate producing all these great chemicals. Secondly, the team is going to celebrate him or her right? The team is going to celebrate him or her and they're going to elevate, maybe even literally, and more beautiful chemicals. Then the stadium is celebrating them, celebrating them. Then the city and the country is celebrating them. And the more that they're being celebrated like this, the more of these chemicals they're producing and it can become so intense that all of a sudden the kid's going, holy. And this is unconscious. Underneath it all, the kid's psychology is saying, 
how did I create this? And it replays the 24 hours that led to this magical moment. And in the locker room, suddenly the kid remembers that he tied his right shoe first, and then he leaned up to tie the left shoe, but then he banged his head on the locker, and then he tied his left shoe, and the head was a little stingy and sore, and then he went out, and he remembers sitting on the bench, and his head was still a little bit sore, and all of a sudden, that kid will tie the right shoe first, bang their head on the locker, tie the left shoe next for the rest of his career. And it had nothing to do with the victory. But so powerful is celebration that when you celebrate intensely, your body wants to record the behavior that led to your celebration. So if you do hit the winning hit or the, or the goal or you get a big sale or you, or you have some big victory at your office or in your personal life, you should celebrate it and, let, and, and you, should, you should ignore the all right for some people. You should ignore that and say, look, if you can't handle my celebration, that's your thing. That's not mine. I'm not celebrating to brag. I'm celebrating to celebrate. I'm celebrating to anchor in the success that I've just felt and to anchor in the behavior that led to that success. Man, I have not heard it broken down that way before. And I think that is so, so important because the natural disposition is just to be like, yeah, I did that. And you carry and keep on going. Or when yeah. people say stuff to you, that makes you feel like, oh, I shouldn't say that. And you kind of hesitate. But everything you just said right now from a biological perspective, the feelings that you have and the reasons why you should, we should celebrate a lot more is so, so powerful. And that's something that I think a lot of people definitely need to hear more and more about. Yeah. And I was looking into um, See You at the Top, which I found really, really fascinating. Your leadership program, they used to take leaders to on top of Kilimanjaro. That, I was like, why Kilimanjaro? Of all the, of all the places, something that seems so difficult, a very low completion rate as well. Why did you decide to go to Kilimanjaro? What inspired you to do that? And how did you find it running those courses over the years with the different people that you took up there? You know, when I, um, when I first decided to get involved in higher level coaching, you know, I'd been doing coaching work for a number of years, but when I decided to get into higher level coaching and actually running workshops and that kind of stuff, um, I started evaluating the way those workshops were being run by other people, examining the way Tony Robbins did things or Harvecker, or Jack Canfield and so on. And what I found was that it was very common for people to use, a, um, use exercises and games and often very challenging physical metaphors. So for example, Tony Robbins uh, has, you know, really used firewalks effectively to, you know, publicize events and, you know, trigger all kinds of breakthrough for people and so on. And, and Harvecker has used things like bar bending and arrow breaking, you know, where you put an arrow in the soft part of your throat and you have to walk into, you know, like some scary stuff, right? And the thing is, as I evaluate a lot of these things, I realized that they were constrained by the classroom. In other words, the reason it was something as simple as a firewalk or simple as an arrow break is that you have a three-day or four-day or five-day retreat of some kind, and you have a limited amount of time, and you're in a classroom, you know, okay, you can step outside and do a quick firewalk, but, you know, you don't really have a great deal of time. And I, I, I thought to myself, like, I want a metaphor that is much more pervasive and much more um, representational of actual life. A firewalk is not a representation of life. A firewalk is representational of overcoming your fears, of using your willpower, right, to overcome the body's desire to not get burnt and force yourself into action, just like taking a cold shower or a cold ice bath is. It's your, your, what those things do is give you an opportunity to show your body who's in control, who's in command. 
And, 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 and they can be very powerful exercises to show you that you can overcome your fear. But the, you can't live your life in firewalk physiology. You can't live your life in firewalk psychology. It's, it's, you can use that, say, for example, if you need to, if you, if you need to um, say you want to quit your job, you can get yourself into firewalk physiology and go in there, I quit and get all the power up. But you can't live your relationship that way. And so I started thinking about how could I construct an exercise that would be more representational of, um, uh, of real life? And then suddenly I realized I had climbed Kilimanjaro with a group of friends some years before. And I realized that of all the work that I had done on all the retreats I'd been to and seminars and trainings and all this stuff that I'd been through, the most transformative thing that I had done was climbing Kilimanjaro. Like it was massively transformative for me. I was a different person when I was done with that climb than I was before. And, um, you know, let's be clear, it's, it's, it's the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. It's the, one of the tallest mountains you can climb without supplemental oxygen. That's not to say that you wouldn't like some oxygen. It's just, you can do it without. And it's very, very challenging. And I suddenly thought, you know, during that whole process, I, I had this um, recognition that I experienced an, a very wide variety of emotional states of wide variety, like huge ups and huge downs and fascinations and depressions and angers and sadness and resentment. Like, I, and I thought to myself, wow, it's almost like a whole year of emotions in a week. And I thought that's the metaphor right there. That is the metaphor. We should use Kilimanjaro as the metaphor. Let's not worry about what we can bring into the classroom. Let's worry about where we can take the students, right? Let's where we can take the clients. And so we started running that program as a way of teaching mental toughness, communication, leadership skills. And that was exactly right, is that we would, we would have the opportunity to really work with people because they, you would, it was almost like spending a year with them emotionally. And, um, and you know, you're right, the completion rate, depending on where you read about it, is the, the, I think the maximum completion rates you'll read about are usually about 30%. That is to say, about 30% of the people who attempt the summit will actually reach the summit. And over the course of all of our CEO at the Top programs, we averaged 90%. And, and I think what that demonstrated was that there were certain things that we were teaching about physiology and psychology that were helpful in the moment, but that those things were also translatable to your real life. And, and of course, you know, that's the feedback we've had from our clients. Yeah. That's definitely one of the things on my list to do is to climb Kilimanjaro and listen to you talk about the different changes that you, that it pushes you like emotionally, mentally, physically, I can see how that will play through in an organization and for, for leaders who are looking after the teams who are running different companies, because a lot of those emotions come up and they show up in our day-to-day -day lives and different experiences that we have when doing those, engaging those activities. Yeah, we had this one guy um, years ago on the trip, French guy, and um, we were doing this process after the mountain where we were what happens is when people come off the mountain, they immediately start to focus on the best parts of themselves, like what got them through the process and how did they push themselves up to the top. And, you know, they, they immediately start focusing on that. And if somebody didn't make it to the top, they talk about what they learned as a result and very positive framing, all very good stuff and good habits to have for life. But if you only do that, then you miss out on great opportunities to learn. And so we ran a process where we specifically looked at the darker emotions, the difficult emotions, the painful emotions that came up as we went through the whole, um, as we went through the whole experience. And, um, and so at one point, this guy, he, he says, he goes, uh, um, he goes, I, I found out, I was walking up the mountain and he, he, he realized that he says, 
I find that I, I just blame everybody around me all the time. And he goes like, and you'll, you'll, you you gotta, what, what's your profanity rule here on your, on your podcast? I'm not usually one to swear, but to tell this story properly, I might need to be a bit flexible. Go for it. All right. So he, he's like, he goes, I, I, I'm walking up the mountain, you know, and then one guy walks past me and he is so like cheerful and chipper and I fucking hated him. And then this one girl, she's like half my size. She's walking along and she's singing a song and I fucking hated her too. And then I'm walking up on the summit night and I'm thinking that fucking Eric made me come here and I fucking hate him and I fucking hated you all. And he goes, and now I realize I look back on my life and every time I've gone into a business partnership, every time I've done something and if it doesn't work, I immediately blame everyone around me. And he goes, I'm done. I'm done with the blaming. It's time to take responsibility. I decided to go on this trip. Eric told me it would be the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. How can I blame him? This girl who's going up the mountain and singing and, and, and enjoying herself, I shouldn't be blaming her. I should be asking her, how are you doing that? I want that. And he just had the most phenomenal breakthrough because he was able to see it right then and there. And he couldn't see it when it was happening in his normal life. Wow. That's so powerful. With all the leaders that you have worked with over the years, with the work you've done leading different companies, what does leadership mean to you? For me, uh, you, you, you really have no business attempting to lead other people until you can lead yourself. That, 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 that's the first starting point is um, if you cannot lead yourself, if you cannot manage your state of mind, uh, you know, my friend Chip Connolly, who was the uh, founder of Joie de Vivre uh, and, and just a phenomenal speaker on emotional intelligence, um, he puts it so nicely. He says that the chief executive officer um, shouldn't be chief CEO, shouldn't be chief executive officer. It's chief emotions officer. If you are not able to consciously assess the right emotions for the right situation, which is ultimate personal leadership, if you can't do that, then you don't have any real business leading other people. And so I think that's leadership means to me self-mastery first, leadership second. Yes, as you, as you can imagine, um, <laughs> I love that definition because that's actually one of my, my core principles when I do my coaching, my work with leaders. I was like, you need to learn to lead yourself if you can lead other people. It just doesn't work any other way. And people have tried it so many times and we see disastrous examples time and time again because people haven't taken that time to sit with themselves, to get to know themselves, to understand their emotions, understand how they're going to process things, which is even why things like Kilimanjaro is great because you can go through all those different emotions and process those things and you'd be like, yeah. okay, when I face this, this is how I show up. This is how I respond. So I need to know that when I'm working with people, I need to respond differently because I'm going to face these kind of pressures. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot about that a lot with what we've gone over, you know, through 2020 and early 2021, where, you know, uh, it's been a um, oddly challenging time, a weird kind of challenge, you know, um, uh, in one sense, it's a really like scary, difficult challenge. In another sense, it's really been a very passive challenge for a lot of people. In other words, most people, most people still haven't been directly affected in terms of actually getting sick. Many people didn't lose their jobs. Many people didn't lose their businesses. And yet everybody on earth feels the tension. Everybody on earth feels the pressure. I would say that this is the first time on earth that's ever happened. I would say that even in World War II, there were many people who were completely ambivalent and basically unaware. They, 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 weren't, they weren't worrying about it every day. The average person sitting in America, they were aware that they had sent soldiers, but the war wasn't like showing up in mainland America. 
And all of a sudden COVID has showed up like everywhere. And I, I, I actually think one of the reasons that it's been so challenging is that we have been the least challenged set of generations in a very long time. So we're actually not that good at challenge. Um, if you if you if you consider, I turned 51 this year. So I, okay, I'm 51 years old. If I was born in 1900, by the time I was you know in my late teens, I would have fought my way through World War One and and the Spanish flu, by the way, which effect, infected one third of everybody on Earth. And then I would have got through that, and I would have, I, by the time we got to like the 30s, I'd be going through the Great Depression. So now I'm 35 years old, and I'm in the Great, you know, like Great Depression. And then, then 10 years later, I'd have to be fighting my way, you know, through World War II, one way or the other. And then by the time I got to my age now, I'd be staring down the barrel of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like that generation, <laughs> they dealt with some stuff, and, and in the meantime, we really haven't, most of us. And so this has been, I think, partly it's been as difficult as it's been because things have been so easy. And I, I think that that's one of the reasons it's a good idea for leaders, particularly people who want to step up and be in a leadership position, to uh, push themselves and to undertake things that push their emotional limits and to put themselves in situations where their fear does get triggered or their anger does get triggered so that they can learn to master those things. Because if you don't have those emotional experiences, how can you master them? That's a great example of that from you is what you describe as the hindsight window when you shared about your experiences when you guys had your stuff taken away from you how you process that i mean when i when i heard you talk about that previously which obviously you can go into a little bit more now i must admit the first feeling i had was if i had all my stuff taken it definitely wasn't that <laughs> it definitely wasn't a sense of the calm and and how you kind of bro broke it down so do you mind just breaking down the the hindsight window the experiences that you had and how you actually developed that mastery because i think that's very critical for leaders to, be able to learn as well yeah absolutely so i developed the hindsight window as a way of dealing with what i perceive to be a gap between a quote bad event and the day that you reconcile the event like so you know we've all had the experience of getting fired from a job or being broken up with or something quote unquote bad happening and i say quote unquote because that's a judgment right but we can all agree that in the moment those things might be unpleasant painful difficult and so we all have also had the experience that that bad thing later on turned out to be a gift. And so the hindsight window is the period of time between the event and the day that you consider it to be a gift. The day that you recognize it in a, as a, you recognize it as a sharp or flat note in the otherwise perfect symphony of your life. And, and the reason I think it's so important for us to look at this is that I really spotted something with people. And that is that the more uh, anger, resentment, pain, guilt that they, that they have about the events of their past, uh, the more anxiety they have about their events of the future. It makes sense. If you've had a whole lot of stuff in your past, which is causing you regret and pain and guilt and anger and resentment, well, clearly more of that's coming. And so, you know, the, the, the more of that is in your past, the more you're expecting, therefore, the more anxiety you're having. On the other hand, the more gratitude and appreciation somebody has for the events of their past, well, the more faith they have that the future in front of them is not necessarily going to be easy, but that they're going to be able to handle it. In a weird way, it's like this. Either way, the road was bumpy. The question is, did you enjoy the bumps or not? And if you enjoyed the bumps, then you're not worried about the bumps that are coming. If you drive a four by four, you're probably looking forward to them. But if you drive a, you know, a Mercedes with reduced suspension, then you're probably dreading the bumps that are coming if you're delicate. And so what, what, 
what, what the hindsight window talks about is basically um, how to process events from your past so that you can develop an appreciation or gratitude about them, even if you perceive them to be bad. It's also how you can neutralize yourself against events that are coming up in the future that you know might push your buttons or trigger you, how you can neutralize yourself about that stuff by learning from them. And then of course, the tough one, how do you process those events in the moment? in the very moment they're happening. So in the hindsight window talk that you probably saw on Goalcast or YouTube or somewhere, the, the, uh, um, here's an example that wasn't in that talk. I was in a casino in the Bahamas. Uh, the Atl it became the Atlantis Hotel some years later. And four men walked around with assault rifles. They just walked in with assault rifles and started shooting the place up, glass exploding, people screaming. And at that point, what happens is, is that your limbic system wants to take over and just flood you with emotional chemicals so that you don't think at all, that you just run, that you hide, that you, you know, you, you, it's all like panic stations, right? And that's because thinking is too damn slow. Instincts are fast. But I didn't want to do that. And, and immediately, immediately, as soon as I felt the fear taking over, I don't like losing control. And so I immediately stopped and I said, what is really going on here? And I said, it's either a mass killing or a robbery. And if it's a mass killing, I don't want to be anywhere near people. Right now, meanwhile, all the other people are scrambling and screaming and running with each other down the hallway to the other casino where for all we know, there's more gunmen. We don't know. And again, if it's a mass killing, they're looking for people. And I'm like, I don't want to be near people. And if it's a robbery, I also don't want to be near people. So immediately I noticed there's a door behind the bar that we're standing at. And the door says employees only. Now this is a casino. You don't, you don't go into those areas, right? You know, you don't go into the, you, you don't go into those areas. Well, I was like, hell no, I do go into those areas. And I, I grabbed my girlfriend by the arm and I pushed, pulled her and we went through the door and door closed behind us. And suddenly we found ourselves in the kitchen. And the first thought that I had is they're not here to make a sandwich. We're safe in here. We're, we're safe in here. And then I took us a little deeper into the kitchen, got us into the pantry, closed our door in the, in the pantry where we found the rest of the kitchen staff, funny enough. And we stayed in there until they called an all clear. Now, what happened in that moment, if I break it right down, and we've all had the experience of stopping time. Every one of us at some point in time, we've tripped and fallen or so we've almost been in a car accident or been in a car accident and time compressed and suddenly a few seconds felt like you could actually examine what was going on inside the seconds, right? Well, what happened for me is those people walked in, as soon as I heard the gunfire, I knew it was gunfire. I knew that it was gunfire. So before I just went to panic stations, I stopped and asked myself, what is really happening here? Robbery or mass shooting? Those are the only two things I could think about, Robbing, robbery or mass shooting. Okay, what does that mean? It means don't be around people. Okay, what does that mean? It means get away from people, don't run with the herd. And I broke away and went off into the kitchen. And, 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 and so I'm using that example because it's extreme. You're, I can tell you right now, your limbic system is fighting for power when there's a guy walking in with guns, right? Like that, that's really scary. But if you go to the story that you heard in the original hindsight window, let, that takes something that's, that has happened but is no longer threatening you. And, and what happened there? After six months on the road with almost everything we owned in the car, moving and what have you, and it's all in there, it's seven bags full of everything, money, computers, hard drives with all our data, like backups, everything, right? And we go into the grocery store, we leave the driver to, to, to protect the car and guard it. Instead of protecting it, he texts his friends and says, come clean out the car. While we're in buying groceries for the, you know, home for the, bear in mind, we've just come from doing retreats all over the world. We've just built a school in East Africa for students that really need one. Like we, we feel like our karma banks are pretty full up, right? We're not expecting this. Walk outside the store, open the door. The stuff is gone.
it's gone. Like it's gone. And in that moment, rage and anger comes up. Yeah. It just comes up. And I immediately ask myself, what am I feeling right now? Rage and anger. Is that helpful? No, it's not. If they were still here, if they were robbing the car right now, it might be helpful, but they're not, they're gone. It's not helpful. What would be more helpful right now? Calm, acceptance. <laughs> That's not an available app from the app store. Like, <laughs> can't seem to download that one. It's not available. Okay, but how could I maybe get there anyway? Is it possible that one day I'm gonna look back on this and laugh? Is it possible that one day I'm gonna look back on this and see some grain of benefit in it? Yeah, I guess it's possible. How? Well, you know, thank God it didn't happen last year, two years ago, because two years before I'd lost all my money in a horrible investment and I would never been able to afford to replace this stuff. In the meantime, I had totally turned my finances around and at the end of the day, it was 50 grand worth of stuff and I could handle it. I mean, it, I didn't enjoy it, but I could handle it. Thank God. By the way, that was my first frequency of gratitude. Once I found a little bit of gratitude, I started looking deeper and I found other reasons of gratitude. And the next thing you know, still standing at the back of the car, all the yucky stress chemicals are gone. I am actually feeling a sense of excitement and gratitude. And I think to myself, it's no problem. It's no problem. And that meant that I was able to handle the situation. By the way, as a measure of how well I handled it, the police allowed me, because I owned a movie studio, the police allowed me to edit the CCTV footage because they couldn't do it. Now, think about that. Like, they don't let crazy people do that stuff. They don't let people who are screaming and angry and shouting. Yeah. They, they let somebody who is calm and powerful. And, and I, I, I want to just offer this because I, I know I've shared this story and then somebody will always come out of the woodwork and say, well, you're just talking about the suppression of your emotions. And I'm not. I'm not talking about suppressing emotions either. I'm talking about recognizing that your emotions are in a sense, a shortcut for thinking. They, your emotions direct your body's behavior and some emotions are very useful in certain situations and very unuseful or unhelpful in other situations. And so what I'm really talking about is the conscious use of emotions for the optimal experience of every single moment. Now, that doesn't mean that you might not experience some anger and grief about something and you need to cleanse that out. That's a different thing I'm talking about in the moment. But here's the beauty. By doing that in the moment, I stored no trauma. Because the way trauma gets stored is you OD, you overdose on all the traumatic chemicals. You overdose on all the, the stress chemicals. And that's part of what creates the traumatic memory. I only have the sweetest memory of that day. I really do. Like it was a gore. My, my, my wife and I had a real bonding over the whole thing. We, we really, like it was a huge breakthrough day for us. I have no trauma about it. And that's that's going to take a little a little while to kind of just sink in and, and process of going from the anger and the frustration to actually if that doesn't serve me in this current moment how do i then look at a different emotion or how do i activate a different emotion that does serve me that does help move this experience forward that does help those around me to be able to stay calm and to deal with this a lot better rather than the natural anger and the frustration would, would tend to come out. Yeah. You know, let's say, generally speaking, when somebody gets fired from their job, they kind of knew it was coming, right? It's, it's rare. I mean, it, if they didn't know that it was coming, 
then either they have the most unconscious boss in the world or they are the most unconscious employee in the world. Like if the firing is coming, you usually have some idea, right? So now employee gets summoned to the office. Now, the thing is, is that they've already been living with a low grade level of fear because they kind of thought they might get fired. So they've already been living with cortisol. And what the cortisol has been doing is constricting their blood vessels, ironically, to stop them from bleeding to death because most of the stresses that our ancestors faced involved bleeding, right? So, so now you produce this cortisol that's partly designed to stop you from bleeding to death, and yet you slow your blood down. You start producing adrenaline, which is designed to make your heart pump harder and to make your muscles contract, contract, uh, contract with more strength. And, and, and you've been doing this for days, so you're burning out, right? Then you get the call, come to the office. And then it doubles up, right? Boom, more cortisol, boom, more adrenaline, boom, more noradrenaline. And you're stronger and your, 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 your brain has more sugar in it and you're intensely negative. Because by the way, when you're afraid, you become pessimistic. It's, it's safer to be pessimistic than, than optimistic. So then you walk into the office full of fear chemicals designed to fight or run or freeze. But I can, I can tell you my opinion on this is that if you get fired from a job fighting, not useful, Running away, not useful. Freezing, not useful. <laughs> so, <laughs> tiger, tiger looking at you through the trees, all three of those things might be useful. Boss firing you from the job, not useful. So, so the trouble is, is that that person is having unconscious emotions guide their entire process, which is, by the way, going to guide how they respond. And they're probably going to respond either with uh, you know anger and vitriol or with meekness and depression and guilt trips neither one of which is helpful at all you know what what if, if ever i had to get fired and you know luckily that i haven't had to go through that but let's say i had to get fired i would want this to be my response thank you god you know i've been sitting here worried about what's going on with this job for a long time and you and i both know it hasn't been working out and i'm glad that one of us finally had the guts to call an end to it i'm sorry it wasn't me i'm glad it was you Thanks very much for the opportunity. That's what I want to say. By the way, what kind of job reference am I getting when people call later? They're going to go, you know, we let him go, but we're not so sure we should have. <laughs> totally different experience. <laughs> that would absolutely throw your boss for a loop with that kind of a response. We're like, what just happened here? I can't yeah. believe it. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly he's taking responsibility. Like, oh, this, this is the answer the boss might give. Uh, that was just a test. We're going to give you another month. If you can be that guy, you know, if you can be that guy, we'll give you another month. Uh, with everything that you've experienced, what does success mean to you? What does it look like to you? You know, it, that, it's funny you say that. The, the, before I became a speaker and all this stuff, I used to publish this journal on the internet called the Success Express Journal. I started it at the beginning of email in 1994. And uh, I wrote in that journal at one point, because somebody asked me the question and I, I said, the, um, I believe that the only true measure of success in life is the number of days that you are really, truly happy. And, 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 and some people, you know, think that I mean cheerful. No, I just mean happy in that sense of contentedness that you feel fulfilled. It's that every day that you go to sleep, having been grateful for that day, having been appreciative for that day, every single day that you do that is, is like a plus score. And every single day you go to bed, like with resentment, with regret is a minus score. And so the higher your plus score, the more successful you are. Now, of course, you can define success in different areas differently. Like success in business could be about money. Success in your relationship could be about how often you have sex or how happy you are or how, freak, how infrequently you have arguments. But success in life is about the number of pluses versus the number of minuses. And that's not to say, and this is so important, right? Like, because you could have two people living, say, the same life. 
And one of them is having a whole lot of really cool stuff happen and then the occasion, and then also a lot of really challenging stuff. And the other one is having the exact same things, right? But one of them could have a lot more pluses. And the way they could have a lot more pluses is when something negative, negative happens, when something painful happens, that they quickly assess it as a gift in terrible wrapping paper. They quickly go, wow, well, I got fired. What am I gonna learn from that? What's the gift in this for me, right? And, and, and when they can do that, then that day can still be recorded as a plus because they don't sit there with a bunch of simmering resentment and, and, and anger. You know, years ago, um, I just told the story the other day, so it's fresh in my head. But uh, I, when I first started running our, our what we call Business Freedom Experience, which is our five-day entrepreneur business school program, um, we, we play a game during the program. And the, the game involves leaders assembling teams that build small businesses for the five days and they, they sell stuff, real stuff, they, they, their own products and services. We've had teams that have done tens of thousands of dollars worth of sale during the five days. And, uh, and so as, as, as this game goes on, the very first time I played it, one of the guys, you know, one of the questions came up, can we fire, if I'm a leader, can I fire somebody from my team? I'm like, yeah, of course you can, of course you can, because I, I want real life here. So say you're on a team and you get fired, then I'm gonna bring you up on stage, gonna talk to you about what you learned about getting fired, gonna help you reframe it, gonna help you learn from it and put you back out on another team and you're gonna go from strength to strength and it's awesome. But then somebody says, yeah, but can we fire the leader? And I'm like, oh man, that's really complicated for a five-day game. Like, that's a really complicated thing. So I thought, you know what? I don't want to say no, because I want it to be as real as possible. So I said, yeah, yeah, you can totally fire the leader as long as it's fully unanimous, as long as the entire team agrees. I thought that way, in five days, it'll never happen. Like, it, that, that's a nice way to say yes, but it'll really be no. Day two, day two, I show up for the workshop and one of the teams has fired their leader. Wow. Day two, He's, they've already fired him. And I'm like, holy crap. If one participant gets fired and I have to bring them up on stage and do some coaching and reframing with them, I can do that. It's not that devastating. They get fired from the team. What I want them to do is to learn from it and not blame. But can you imagine the devastation of being unanimously fired in one day from your entire, <laughs> this poor guy, he, he, I'm surprised he even showed up for the workshop. The poor guy, he's like, uh, he got fired. He's so angry and he's like, you can see it on him. And I bring him up and we talk about it and he's not willing to take it. He's like uh, angry and he's resentful. And somehow I managed to get him onto one of the other teams. They're willing to take him onto the team based on the skills he has. And he goes off to the other team. Well, <laughs> then, Day five, we're doing a huge round of sharing about the way the game worked and what people learned. And dude, hands up, gets the microphone, and I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm, I have no idea what's coming, man. I'm actually, as a facilitator, I'm a little nervous. Like, <laughs> where's this gonna go? And he says, I just wanna thank my team for having the guts to fire me. I wanna thank them for not being nice. All it would have taken is for one of them to be nice and they couldn't have fired me. And I'm so grateful that nobody did that. I'm so grateful that they all gave it to me for real because what I didn't admit to you guys the other day is that I got fired from my job last week and I was blaming them, how wrong they were, how they hurt me, how it was their responsibility. And it's only now that those strong people on that team had the guts to fire me that I began to realize it was my own creation and my own responsibility. And I will never be the same again. And I want to thank everybody for that. Wow. Now, 
What that means is, is he's just turned both firings into plus days. That's the deal. That's the definition of success. Plus days. On that note, I, I can't think of uh, <laughs> a, a better ending than than that because I think what today has been has been it's been a masterclass in leading yourself emotionally, mentally, physically from a different experiences with actual tangible steps that you can actually take plus examples that you can actually utilize and tap into to show that this isn't just something that's randomly out there it's actually a real life people's real experiences and hey what here's what they get at the end of it so i just want to say just thank you for that because it's been i've been laughing all the way throughout and learning all the way throughout as well and it connects all the way throughout because this really resonates with me so much and something i do a lot with my clients and here are you with your experiences talk about and share your experiences i know a lot of people that are going to gain from it so thank you very much you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want to say this. I really, um, I really believe that uh, one of the things that we are absent in the world right now is um, enough effective leadership. And we see quite a lot of it in the business sphere at the moment. We see a lot of it at the top end of entrepreneurship. We see a lot of it in the small to medium-sized businesses. But what we're not seeing enough of it in, is in our political structures. We're not seeing enough of it in our educational structures. We're not seeing enough in our legislative processes. And I really appreciate that you are going out there and trying to find the strongest um, you know, leadership principles you can and sharing them with people. We can no longer rely on the leadership around us the way we once, I think, could. And that is all the more reason why we now need to become our own leaders and become the change that we want to see in our families, in our businesses, in our cultures and societies, in our country, and basically on the whole planet. So yeah, keep doing the great work. And uh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Everyday Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them. You can listen to old episodes, or if you have a question about this episode or any of the episodes, you can just press a button and ask me that question and I'll answer it on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, share this podcast with someone else. We'll see you next time on Everyday Leadership.